0: Bonjour Tensei, welcome to Minogundegan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. On this episode, we speak with Indigenous youth. We posed the question, do Indigenous youth see reconciliation happening? Has it happened within the lives of these young adults? Stick around to find out. Our first guest is Erica Wilson. At only 24 years of age, Winnipeg actor Erica Wilson has tackled some substantial roles in her career. Wilson, who grew up in the North End, was first introduced to theatre as a 13-year-old student at Andrew Minarski School through a Manitoba Theatre for Young People outreach program. She took classes for two years and has served as a teaching assistant. Erica is currently in the cast of Women of the Fur Trade.
1: Bougie welcome to Mino the Good Voice podcast. I am Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, and I am here with Erica Wilson. Erica, welcome. Hi,
2: thank you. Um, I've been kind of in and out, kind of doing things for the past 10 years, since I was 13 when I started taking acting classes. And uh, yeah, I've gotten myself in really silly situations. Like I've worked for the Inspire Awards for five years. I've traveled across Canada with them. Um, I recently stage managed the Mariachi Ghost at a prismatic festival in Halifax. And uh, I just got back from Victoria because I'm workshopping a show that I'm doing at the high performance rodeo in calgary in january so i mean like yeah i'm kind of like all over the place and then i just have like part-time jobs to kind of like subsidize my income between uh, theater gigs i also work in education i worked as a teaching assistant and as a teacher within the school division and m2ip
1: okay so she does it all folks that's <laughs> uh, that's erica wilson okay <laughs> putting us all to shame so did you grow up in the city
2: yeah i actually uh like for 17 or 17 years of my life, I lived on Selkirk Avenue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I'm a North end chick. You're a North End chick. <laughs> and now what kind of chick are you? Uh, I live on lilac and Macmillan. Where, where are your people from? Where's your family from?
2: Ooh, that's always been a really uh, like touchy question because mm-hmm. like because I'm metis and my dad's like a my mom didn't really let me get to know my dad's side of the family and her side of the family refused to acknowledge that they were Métis. They always said they were French. So my mom's side was a little wacky, and then my mom excluded me from my dad's side and never really got to know them. I know some of them are from Duck Bay, and I think my mom's side is from St. Laurent. Yeah, other than that, like, I don't know the full history. I just know that I have brown
1: skin. Now we're in this super fantastic uh, space age of reconciliation <laughs> you know we've uh, we've gone full throttle as as somebody who's uh, a, a young person because you're 24 right yeah just turned 24 you're 24 you are doing everything you, within the theater community and you know education wise too have you seen any changes made to your industry since the trc released the 94 calls to action
2: Mm, yeah, because I think it got released like nine or ten years ago. It was like two thousand nine or two thousand eight that the TRC came to action. It's really, it's really weird for me because I, um, I have this thing where I kind of still feel like I'm an emerging artist or like I'm a new actor in Winnipeg. But it's like, no, I'm, I'm not. It's just, it's really hard to get into certain groups of theater cliques. But I've noticed since like this era of reconciliation. Especially with the educations and arts, I feel like it's like tokenism, like it's not Mm. really there. They're just doing it as another way to get a grant. Mm. And Indigenous artists don't get those grants, but the whiter theater artists do all the time. And they get these grants to search out reconciliation for their company or for themselves and stuff, those... Words are new in the, in the last ten years, so I mean, like it's all fine and dandy. But like when a company is trying to grab like at least one indigenous artist, like mm-hmm. ooh ooh, come work with us, come work with us, and you realize you're not there as an artist, you're there as a check, like a check mark.
1: What is what does reconciliation mean to you?
2: Uh, yeah, I've thought about it a lot, actually. <laughs> I think I, we all have. <laughs> I googled <laughs> reconciliation <laughs> before I got here. And in ja- ja- somewhere in January 2018, they redid a video on like the Government of Canada's website on what is reconciliation. It was a panel of like, Indigenous people talking about what reconciliation is. It's been <laughs> like eight or nine years since the TRC came out. And you're having this what is reconciliation. Reconciliation conversation. I remember, I think, only like seven or eight out of the recommendations. Between a municipal and like government have been initiated Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking to myself like watching this video I'm like well they're talking about like public sectors and private sectors and the government and stuff what wasn't really touched upon was like self-reconciliation I think it's really important as like having to have terms of fighting with what my identity is people telling me what my identity is and people forcing me to tell my story about my identity it took me a long time of being very angry mm-hmm. of who i was cuz i remember my cousins making fun of me for my skin being too dark when i was a younger like a little kid and i remember just like really not liking myself because there was a point when i started emerging that i was like oh people only want the token indian or whatever so it took me a while to like reconcile like hey like you're going to be okay like just like accept who you are understand that your mom and everyone did these kind of types of things to you for a reason growing up Mm -hmm. I'm like one out of, like, the four people in my immediate family that's successful. Mm -hmm. It says a
1: lot. It says a lot, but it also, it is a start, right? Yeah. So, like, I've been reconciling,
2: like, with my family, just being like, hey, like, I know things weren't done properly and you've had a really difficult time in your life, but, like, I'm no longer going to hold that against you. So I feel it's, like, really important for, like, reconciliation to happen within families and within people's lives and self-esteem. Because, like, once we're able to, like, get out of this slump and, like, gain more self-esteem and uh, reconcile with ourselves, I feel like that will help a lot of healing and it'll help a lot of people kind of, like, understand that they're worth it and they don't need to um, have these, like, negative, down-spiraling lifestyles. They can start new and they can
1: just accept themselves. If you had a magic wand, a magic reconciliation wand, <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing that you feel like you would change immediately?
2: You know how, like, <laughs> I just thought of this now. <laughs> you know how Domino Pizza delivery drivers, like, if you don't deliver your pizza in time, they get, like, reprimanded or something? Or, like, the company owes you a free pizza? Yes. Or, like, you know how, like, like delivery drivers and all those people get like, more penalties. Yeah. My magic wand would be, like, if, if like, the government or anyone, like, from, like, us promising reconciliation to, like, the government promising reconciliation, that they don't, like, meet their deadlines, uh-huh. that, like, something will happen. Like, my wand would be, like, like, oh, this is a really big promise and determining the life of, like, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, and you don't get this done within five years, and I think you should just, like, disappear into the void. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza is one thing. You get a free pizza. But if you're in charge of like thousands of people's lives and you don't make shit, shit happen within like 10 years, five years, I don't think you should have a life. I think there should be like a real clock.
1: That's genius. <laughs>
2: then people people will actually be like, oh, no, Like if I don't do this, I will enter a void and I don't know where the void is. And it'll be their own personal hell.
1: <laughs> I kind of love that idea.
2: <laughs> I just thought of it.
1: What advice would you give to a young person who who sees you and says I want to do that what advice would you give to that young person it's okay to be selfish
2: yeah I remember well I'm an only child so I mean it's really easy for me to be selfish (laughs) no matter how lonely I've gotten if I've had toxic friends I don't go back to them if I knew that my family stressed me up to the point where I couldn't function anymore I don't talk to them if I know that a job is causing me major mental health problems, where on my breaks I cry in the bathroom, then maybe maybe those things aren't right for me. Maybe I need to find somewhere that I can uh, feel like a decent human being and feel like I'm wanted. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm very selfish in taking care of myself. And from there, because I've, I've been able to learn like self-worth and self-respect, I've been able to say yes and no to opportunities. And just reminding myself, when, when you see other people in a position where they're not at their game, Um, don't feel afraid to not help them out because that will come around. There's been several times where I've gotten small jobs, small acting gigs and stuff like that because whenever anyone needs help, I always offer help. Just because you're in a position where you have a title does not mean that you can be, you can't not be a basic human being and help people out. That's one of the reasons why I'm so successful is because I take care of myself and when I have time, I notice the people around me uh, and take care of them when I can
1: for for there to be actual reconciliation within that specific sector Mm -hmm. what do you think needs to change i think one of the things that needs to stop is forced reconciliation
2: um i feel like the arts community really has a drive when they start their meetings to have an elder come in and do like a smudge Mm -hmm. to have uh maybe a hoop dancer come in and do a little song have one indigenous speaker kind of thing and like trying to include it. Yes, that's all fine and dandy and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But I just feel like a lot of them still take it as tokenism um, and don't apply it in their lives. And I do understand Winnipeg is one of those cities where a lot of the people who are indigenous in the arts community leave. It's a known fact that all the artists leave Winnipeg because there isn't anything here. The education and the safety nets of other Indigenous people aren't in like Vancouver or Toronto and other places. Mm-hmm. So I think Winnipeg and the arts and theater community should stop forcing it and just honestly just let people in, just yeah. regardless of their Indigenous or not. Because I know it's always like, oh, yeah, look, we have this, let's exploit this kind of thing. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of exploitation not even with indigenous issues but like any issues it's always about exploitation and this fact that like oh we console and you re-reconcile with you but i just feel it's a bit cheesy Mm -hmm. and i feel people should just be more natural and just like not force indigenous people to re-bring up trauma in theater and just allow them to tell the stories that they want to tell i went to go see whiteface at the winnipeg uh fringe I love the show. The one, I actually struck a tear um, when um, I have her on Facebook. Her name is Lady something. Um, but one of the things that she said was, I don't want to tell stories about trauma. What if I want to tell stories about flowers? I love flowers. Yeah. And that hit me because like, yeah, I think it's really important for indigenous people n- in the arts not to be stuck talking about the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. But to be able to talk
1: about whatever they want, it is so epically true that we often get pigeonholed in these in these specific roles, and it almost it almost changes our biology as artists, as you know, actresses, comedians, you know, playwrights. It it really does. I've seen so many people in the art scene mm-hmm. just transform. And I don't know if all the transformations have been healthy. And I feel like the climate that we're living in right now is probably not the healthiest one. Mm -hmm. Especially when you have people who are still struggling with their identity, you know, of of being Indigenous. And then you have all this sort of, like, forced reconciliation from a non-Indigenous perspective. And then you have you know, and then you're trying to face your own reconciliation within your own life Mm -hmm. and within your own, you know, family tree. Um, Erica, I just I wanted to say a huge miigwetch for being here and for sharing your words and for just being a young person who is honest and who is Taking a stand against tokenism <laughs> because it's an epidemic yeah, right it now. Is. It is like a serious epidemic. So I just, you know, miigwech for being so heckin' awesome.
2: <laughs> well, I'm glad I finally came out. I was nervous, but you know, it goes away when you start talking. Exactly. Exactly. And I
1: don't bite <laughs> <laughs> most times.
0: <laughs> Welcome back to Mino Gundagan, the Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Erica Wilson. Be sure to check her out in Women of the Fur Trade, playing in the Delnavert Museum, December 11th to 16th. Up next, our second guest is Kevin Satie, co-founder of Red Rising Magazine, a proud father, geographer, and a local Anishinaabe activist, and former president of the University of Winnipeg Students Association.
3: Hi, my name is Sasha Mark. Welcome to the Minnogondagan podcast. Uh, We have a special guest with us today. He is one of the co-founders of Red Rising Magazine. He uh, is on the National Film Board here in Winnipeg. And uh, he's a local West Ender. And I just recently found out him and I are both alumni from the same high school. So let's welcome uh, Kevin Setti to the podcast. Do you want to talk a bit about who is Kevin? You know?
4: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I my name is kevin i uh, grew up in the, the west end downtown west end like yourself i went to greenway oh. and then i went to gordon bell graduated from gordon bell and i went to the university of winnipeg straight out of high school and i'm literally still working on a three-year degree i had a, a transplant that kind of set me back and i was on dialysis for a few years so that took up Maybe three or four years of my life. And then I just started from scratch back in university. And then I took two years to work with the students' union. And then I just did my last year and I have like one credit left. So that's been like the last 10 years of my life pretty much. I've co founded Red Rising when I was maybe about three years ago. That's been fun. That's created a lot of cool opportunities for uh, the collective and for people in the community. So,
3: no, it's great. It's, we both grew up in the West End. How do you think, uh, you know, growing up in the West End, um, you know, affected? You know, your kind of own upbringing and like your own kind of perspective. I
4: think it would have been definitely think it would have been different if I was raised in the suburbs. You know, my mom always talks about that. She said she had the choice between raising us in the West End or raising us in like a, a nicer neighborhood or mm-hmm. like a high class neighborhood or whatever. And she chose to raise us in the West End because she was born raised in uh, the North End and so you know she wanted us to to remain close to our community and to to learn you know to learn from the streets to learn from the community to learn from our peers it wasn't easy at mm-hmm. times you know it wasn't always the easiest and um but you know I have my mom was really supportive and she she kept us in sports you know she put us in hockey so I'm lucky that my mom and my dad took the time to take me to practice mm-hmm. and they sacrificed a lot, and they paid money for me to... So hockey was a big part of my, my upbringing in the West End. You know, I played for Orioles. I played oh, for fun. Robert A. Steen. I played for Isaac Brock, and then eventually I went to play for Tyndall Park, and then I played Double A, and I played summer hockey. And uh, so, my yeah, my family sacrificed a lot for, for me to play sports. And so that was, like, my younger years, and, you know, I didn't really care too much about school. Um, mm-hmm. Hockey was the biggest the biggest thing in my life. Then I went to Gordon Bell, and that's, you know, I learned a lot there too. I learned a lot from other students. I learned a lot from teachers and, you know, just being there. You know, there's, it's, it does have a reputation of being a, a rough school, but, you know, from my experience, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really like that. No. You know, there's other schools, you know, that, you know, they had more drugs. Uh, you, there was stuff on the news that was always happening at different schools, like Calvin and you know, Sissler and So I really don't know why we we had the, this reputation because, like, I'd see fights, obviously. Like, yeah. there's people who get maced. There was, you know, stuff that happened. People bring guns to school, whatever. But it wasn't like... And everyone got along, you know? Like, the the jocks hung out with the hippies. Um, you know, there's a lot of newcomers in grade 8 and grade 9. You know, we all hung out together. Yeah, you know, We played football at lunch. We, you know, played lacrosse together. We played sports. We were in classrooms together. Like, it was a pretty pretty close group of people and everyone knew each other and so you know that's one thing that I really loved about Gordon Bell is that everyone knew each other everyone kind of respected each other and um
3: growing up in the West End and going to schools you know like inner city schools uh was you know an important experience for me but um I I also felt like um there was aspects of it where I was missing you know a connection between me and my indigenous indigenous culture you know Mm -hmm. and I found that um I only uh, got into that later down the road after high school. Did, would you find your... Are you somebody who was very connected with, you know, your indigenous culture, like, right mm-hmm. off the hop, or...?
4: Yeah, like, so, actually, like, when I was younger, it wasn't really a big part of my life, but I think my mom understood that she needed to to start learning herself yeah. and so i feel like as a family we started off when i was like maybe five six i remember my first sweat that i went to when i was like three years old four years old and then we um she had a pipe too mm-hmm. so she she kept it in her closet and you know anytime we had a really hard time we would smoke the pipe yeah and then maybe once a year or twice a year we'd go to a sweat in the summertime you know so th- that played a big role in my life and i learned a lot from from my mom and her a- and my aunties her sisters um not her literal sisters but like her you know my clan uh, bear clan you know my aunties are all bear clan and then like at school I didn't really learn too much you know it wasn't until Mm. grade 11 I don't know if you I don't know if Miss Coley was there when you were there Mm, she's like a German teacher but she taught native uh, she taught native studies yeah you know I I helped her I I worked with her because I had aunties and I had uncles that were part of ceremony so she asked me like do you think these people would be interested in coming and speaking so you know that was kind of the first time in school in grade 11 when i actually had the opportunity to learn about teachings so that was a big thing for me that was a big thing for me in terms of like taking school seriously as well yeah because i didn't really take school serious like you know growing up gordon bell like like to party yeah like to do drugs like smoke weed and whatever and um so at lunchtime you go smoke weed and in the afternoon you'd be all burnt out that was the first time i was inspired and i was like okay hey, this is if this is something i can learn in in classrooms and if this is something that um i know is helping my friends because i see my friends that are dealing drugs you know they're paying attention you know they're talking they're sharing they're they're coming to class we're all going to class together and i was like this is something that you know is interesting so I, that's why I chose to go to university. You know, okay. I went to university because I this class and you know these teachers that really cared. And that's kind of my my experience. And I didn't really go to Powell's growing up either. Mm-hmm. Like I never danced. Um, I remember coming to the U of M graduation Powell's once in a while. Um, and then I did go to my mom used to take me to a lot of uh, vigils, like vigils that were happening, like if someone went missing or if someone you know was found murdered. I'd go to those, and, and to me that was kind of like ceremony as well, like people coming together and praying and and smudging and. Um, crying and mourning and stuff so yeah that's kind of my experience growing up I think I was actually very lucky and I Mm -hmm. I call it like privileged okay I was privileged to be able to to have access you know that my mom had a pipe yeah I was able to learn and someone taught her how to you know smoke that pipe and so um we use that on on our hard days Mm -hmm. and during our difficult times and it really it really did help, and uh, you know, to be able to go to a sweat in the summertime, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have access, to my mom to have a vehicle, to be able to drive, you know, I don't think that's uh, something that everybody had, you know, to have a vehicle to be able to go out. And so I was very, I feel like my family, we we're very lucky. I took advantage of that, you know, I I took the time to learn, I paid attention when my elders were speaking, and I really tried to to learn as as much as I could, and it made me feel good. Mm-hmm. Well, it felt good. It was hard. Yeah, you know, like living with the teachings and growing up in this kind of world that we live in like it's not always easy to be kind and gentle and you know respectful and when you're always kind of watching your back or you know protecting yourself from people or you know there's people out there that want to take advantage of you and so yeah it's it's uh different for a lot of people i think
3: it is yeah Yeah. So you do a bunch of volunteers work for the mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. and uh, you're heavily involved in with Red Rising mm-hmm. uh, magazine. So um, for the people who don't know what Red Rising magazine is, what would you describe Red Rising magazine as?
4: I would uh, describe the magazine as a indigenous-led, uh, community-based project. It's a magazine. It's a, it's a zine that was created by Indigenous youth from the inner city of Winnipeg. You know, we wanted to showcase our ideas. We wanted other Indigenous people to showcase their ideas and their skills and their talents. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we collectively believe in is that, you know, we have potential. You know, yeah. we have the potential to be the best. We have the potential to be the most intelligent and brightest, you know, people in this country. And there's a lot of young Indigenous people in our neighborhoods that are, um, who don't, you know, believe in themselves and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of people that don't believe in them as well. And so kind of Red Rising is an opportunity for people to showcase those, those things, those gifts that they have, whether it's writing, whether it's artwork, whether it's comedy, um, whether it's, you know, storytelling, like we, we think of uh, comedy as a form of storytelling and as a form of healing. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a platform basically, and we want to try and maintain it and grow it and you know lately what we've been doing in like the past year is like you know people have joined our collective and it's like you want to do something go ahead and do it you mm-hmm. know, we'll support you um if you, if you have a project or an idea or if there's an event you want to plan or if there's certain aspects that you think we need to improve in, in our events then you know throw your ideas on the table and we'll we'll work with them
3: and you know there's a lot of people who are in positions though uh, they they want their voice to be heard but they just don't know how to do it yet mm-hmm. you know they they sometimes they're creatively just um, haven't found what they want to do yet or they um, they they have something to say but they have no platform mm-hmm. to move forward with that so how do you think would be the best way if you were you know a very like a passionate indigenous you know youth or just like any youth in general I like, uh, like, how would you help mm-hmm. support that? How how would, how would that, uh, like, what advice would you give to that youth? Um, yeah, I think, you know.
4: Yeah, I think the number one thing is to find a group of people that believe in what you believe in. Yeah. You know, find a group of young people that you can relate to, that respect you, that um, want to do the same kind of work you want to do. Um, because, you know, growing up, going to Gordon Bell, you know, I... I I love the culture, I love doing that stuff, but I couldn't really find too many people that were interested in doing kind of the same thing that I wanted to do. I ended up doing things that other people were doing, which was partying and doing whatever. And And so, you know, it wasn't until university, even after university, that I could, that I found a group of young people that thought the same way. I thought that cared about the same things. I kind of went through some of the same things that I went through, but, you know, didn't want to drink, didn't want to do drugs, and want to kind of wanted to try and, you know, change things in our communities and do different things and and you know one of those people was michael you know michael champagne yes you know he invited me out to one of uh his meetings there on west broadway and i remember thinking holy shit who's this guy like this guy's got some pretty awesome ideas and and um so he he invited me and you know he welcomed me into this this his his group and the work that they were doing and and i went to the bell towers and um you know he inspired me to start organizing in the west end and downtown and and then I don't know more came and you know 2000 I think it was 2011 and so I you know that sparked a lot of stuff for for our people to change and getting involved and so yeah I was able to find a group of young people that you know kind of thought the same things that I thought and you know the other kind of advice I would give as well is um you know to um be kind of fearless you know mm-hmm. to not let You know what people think about what you're doing um you know not to let those people bring you down um and there's going to be a lot of people who don't agree with what you're doing but you know as long as you know what you're doing is coming from your heart and it's coming from a good place you know for for the people then i think that's that's good and you know i think the other thing that i'm i have been learning as well and trying to learn is um you know the role of you know women two-spirit in in organizing and um Really, you know, not giving that space, but just moving, stepping back sometimes and just allowing, you know, women to do that work because there's a lot of men in the community that are outspoken and doing, doing a lot of work, but, and women are not getting, you know, the recognition for, for Mm -hmm. the work that they're doing. And so, you know, trying to do that and, and, um, being aware, being aware of that. Um, yeah. And then there's also, um, you know, being aware of white people as well. You know, within our communities that white people aren't, you know, co-opting too much of our ideas and that, <clears throat> you know, people are being fairly compensated for the work that they're doing and, you know, not to let non-Indigenous people steal, steal your ideas to make sure that if you're working with non-Indigenous people to make sure that, you know, you're getting fairly compensated. And, you know, I heard this from one of my friends, I'm not gonna say their, their name, um, but, you know, a couple of weeks ago they said, you know, indigenous people or non-indigenous people, white people have, been, have benefited off our misery and our pain, you know, through residential schools, yep. through these systems, through, you know, the justice system. Um, and now that we're starting to get stronger, they want to capitalize and make money off of our art. Mm-hmm. They wanna capitalize and make money off our, um, our spirits. our medicines they want to make money off our fine arts you know whether that's through grants whether that's through um, filmmaking whether that's through magazine whether you know white people using our hard work and our love and our beauty for themselves yeah you know there's a lot of non-indigenous people out there that are um, real allies and Mm -hmm. are doing real work and putting their bodies on the line and creating opportunities for indigenous people without you know ripping them off Mm -hmm. and that's what we need we need allies that are going to be there and not fucking take advantage of us
3: no exactly anything that's thank you for uh sharing Mm -hmm. that so kevin is there anything else that you want to plug before we sign out
4: yeah just um you know if you have an opportunity to really support you know the young indigenous people that are just starting to find their voice Um, You know, there's a lot of people out there that are outspoken, that are learning, that are sharing, that are challenging white supremacy. They're they're challenging colonization. um, They're challenging the spaces that they're in and they're challenging the people. And, you know, this is not out of anger. This is not out of hate, but it's out of personal experience. Yeah. It's out of, you know, the things that they've experienced and have experienced on a daily basis. And it's the things that we deal with all the time. And, you know, don't look at it as they're angry. Looking, Look at it as an opportunity for education. You know, these people are, you know, sharing these things. You know, these are things that you would never learn about, you know, talking to a white person. Yeah. <laughs> so if someone has something to say, you know, whether it's about whiteness or cultural appropriation or um, oppression, you know, just be an active listener. Mm-hmm. Take the time to listen. Think about how... It affects you how you are affecting people, and you know that goes that goes for everybody. We all need to be be better at listening.
3: Yeah. No, I you said it very wisely, wiser than I could ever say it. So, uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, that is our episode. Uh, if anybody wanted to find you on social media, Kevin, how would they find you?
4: Um, I'm on Facebook, just Kevin Seti. I'm on Instagram. I have like my personal account, which is the Seti, and then I <laughs> have. Uh, one that I'm just practicing with, like, photography and uh, film, which is uh, ever sick, <laughs> ever underscore sick. <laughs> um, so you can check that out.
3: Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin Seti, for uh, joining us here at the Minda podcast. And uh, that is our episode.
0: And uh, I will sign us out. Welcome back to Minda and the good boys podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Kevin Setty, Be sure to check out Red Rising Magazine at your local bookstore. Finally, today we are joined by our third guest, Chance Papanicus, a Muskego Ininu from Kisisiu Sipi Cree Nation and Treaty 5. He is an indigiqueer activist and student leader, as well as student at the University of Manitoba, pursuing an advanced arts degree in political studies. He has a passion for language revitalization and land reclamation.
1: Bonjour, Tanse. welcome to Mino Gendagen, the Good Voice podcast. I am Alyssa Blackwolf-Kixon, and I am here with Chance.
5: Hey, my name is Chance Papanicus. I come from the Kineseo-CP Cree Nation in Treaty 5 territory. I currently attend the University of Manitoba. and pursuing an advanced arts degree in political science, minoring in Indigenous Studies. And um, I've been heavily involved in the Indigenous student activist uh, community for a while now.
1: Yeah, you have. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with everything that's going on, especially here on Treaty One territory at the University of Manitoba, where this podcast takes place, Mm -hmm. have you seen any changes within, you know, within the university uh, since the 94 Calls to Action came out?
5: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I think that I have seen incremental changes primarily by indigenous folks, um, Like with regard to the general student union or the administration we have actually seen very little change since 2015 and since the 94 calls to action were released to the public and that's something that we always draw upon when we do meet with these entities we're always like you know it's been a couple of years it's been a few years it's time that we get cracking on these issues because these issues mean life or death for indigenous folks also black and and, uh, black folks and people of color um all of these like kind of racist um ways of doing things are really detrimental to to our lives and our existence so yeah i don't think that i've seen huge changes thus far but i feel like we're kind of headed in the right direction in a sense that a lot of indigenous folks namely indigenous women are taking the lead and and doing their thing in in the public life in politics in law medicine and it's really empowering to see that however though like like I said, we need non-Indigenous people to show up, and I'm continuously saying this, that we need non-Indigenous people to help us in this journey because this is looking towards a mutually beneficial relationship, and we need both of the parties involved to play an active role in achieving that.
1: And I feel like a lot of non-Indigenous folks, um, that being um, settler, colonizer folks, you know, they show up and they're there, but are they really doing the work like what do you think needs to happen on on that end in terms of of settlers taking part in taking part in reconciliation.
5: Yeah for sure no and that's an important point to bring up is the fact that like uh, settler Folks, they do show up, but it always depends and it always like really is determining determinant on how they act in those spaces and how they don't act and like how much space they take up and how much space they don't take up. And it's really important to understand that, like this is, like I said, a collective effort and each group, each institution, each organization, each individual, they have their own, I guess, kind of idea of what an ally is or what um you know what a what a what a partner to indigenous folks looks like but that's different across the board but in my opinion i feel like it's someone who shows up when we need support when we need bodies on the ground you know on the front lines and just just stands there and and sorry not just just stands there but <laughs> just not just stands ju- there and looks pretty <laughs> yeah no but like showing up sh- uh showing support for indigenous folks ensuring that um They're there to be there, but not, like I said, not to take up too much space and to learn from us and to do things not for us, but with us. Mm. And I think that's a a good way of putting it is like a lot of non-Indigenous folks often do things for Indigenous people. You know, that's due to many things, the savior complex, privilege and so on and so forth. But they show up to do things for us but we need them to do things with us and then again that draws back to like the whole concept of rec I don't even like the term reconciliation but you know I guess that's the best that we'll we'll do with for now
1: what is reconciliation in your own words how would you define reconciliation
5: like when I talk about reconciliation from a personal perspective I often like to include the fact that like in my opinion It's a word that, like I said, is the best for now. I feel like language is so important and that it's constantly evolving and that the language around indigenous activism, around any kind of liberation or reconciliation, you know, it's evolving. And um, I feel like reconciliation, in order for that to happen, you need to have conciliation. You know, you need to have like an actual working mutually beneficial relationship and to be honest that has never happened ever since contact for 500 plus years indigenous folks have been subject to some of the worst treatment at the hands of settler colonialists so not to discredit any of the work that the trc is working on but i feel like we often forget the truth acts the truth aspect of reconciliation and how Like, you know, when I was given my spirit name, I was told to tell the truth and to like walking, walk the earth with strength while I tell the truth and speak for the people. And that's what I do. But reconciliation, like I can go on for days about like what it isn't. But I I delivered a speech last year at the building reconciliation forum here at the U of M. And I basically said like what it isn't and what it is. Like all these problems that we have As indigenous people are because of something and this society needs to recognize that and do everything within their power within their respective say work uh work uh field of work community group of friends whatever to like contribute to that because we can't do it alone and reconciliation we need to like learn about each other learn each other's songs and dances and and foods and languages and, and create a, a country where or a space where we can genuinely benefit from each other's cultures instead of cultures kind of clashing cultures trying to dominate you know we can have an equitable society we just need to work better together as a collective in achieving that but it always boils down to like the system and how it teaches us to like be divided, how it teaches us to to hate on one another. It, you know, it, it sets up all these physical, spiritual and emotional divides within society. And then we fall victim to that because we are we're accustomed to that. And we are designed to like comply with that. But the system needs to change as well. But like I said, that's a part of everyone's duty and we need to like actively play our role using your positions of power in government and business to like create policy, create practices that help Indigenous folks not get ahead, but, you know, get to a place where we can feel as though we have purpose, feel as though we are are loved and appreciated in this society.
1: Have you seen any type of reconciliation happen?
5: in order to like achieve these these mutually beneficial relationships and in order to respect truly indigenous people and their territory and their sovereignty you have to you have to be made uncomfortable in certain situations like I've heard the saying, you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's so true because a lot of the conversations that we've been having are about like student union autonomy and how as Indigenous folks, the fight for education is entirely different than non-Indigenous folks in the sense that governments often have the due diligence to fund our education, to create systems of equitable education for Indigenous folks. So the fight for Indigenous education is entirely different. And the AMSU has really never done a good job at genuinely advocating for Indigenous folks. Now, mind you, there are the, the small wins. Like, the AMSU the is a rather prosperous and wealthy institution. It owns and operates nine businesses, um, it's a multi million dollar organization. And they actually did set aside $5 million uh, for Indigenous students in the, in the form of bursaries and scholarships. Mm -hmm. But then again, what what the Indigenous Student Association could have done with five million dollars goes beyond (laughs) my imagination, (laughs) you know, being as being an executive for for a while. I'm not anymore, but I used to that money we could have turned it into something absolutely beautiful Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that we're not grateful for that but you often see that in society where richer wealthier institutions and entities they just throw money at folks they'll be like here's 10 million dollars for aboriginal languages do with do what you please and your money's great we want it give us more but it's also like you need to do more writing a check and signing a check is so easy yeah and you need to like just do more like I said show up to the protests show up to the to the and aid peoples on the front lines, you know, donate to causes like when Standing Rock was going on. If you have the money to donate to them for the water protectors, donate to them. You know, yeah. there's different ways that you can help. So, but just to, sorry, I veered off. But to go back, reconciliation has been driven by Indigenous people, yeah. uh, Indigenous students at this institution, non-Indigenous entities like the administration and UMSU often... Our hindrances in the sense that we have it's, it's no secret that we've had a lot of conflict with the administration and with the AMSU with regard to like um, just disrespectful circumstances where they have just blatantly disregarded us and our existence and our safety and our security, you know, with the, it's OK to be white posters. The response that we received was whack. It was, we didn't, it was no good. It was, they didn't put any preventative measures in to prevent that from happening again. And simply put, no, but by Indigenous folks, yes, we have been working towards this. We just need non-Indigenous people to show up. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how many times I can say that.
1: (laughs) I think, I think the work that you're doing and that you continue to do is, it's really important, but I mean... You know, do you get paid for your time? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a part of reconciliation, right? right yeah. Do you get paid for your time? Which brings me to my last question. And, and I know you're on the youth episode because you're still, you know, you're still, you're still young. You're mm-hmm. still considered a youth. Yeah. But there is a lot of younger youth out there who... Um, may not feel the support of their community who may not um have the have the right you know sort of chosen family mm-hmm. um what what advice would you give to youth who who look at what you do look at how how strong you are in this community and how how vocal you are what advice would you give to them
5: first off like it, it, like you said it's 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 hard work and oftentimes as indigenous youth activists as indigenous activists just in general we are unpaid we are um not reimbursed for our time and our energy and our knowledge and our stories and that's something that you know is troubling but it's also like the work itself is so rewarding you know like when we plan events when we do things like planning national summits about racism or national youth gatherings or elders gatherings when we you know when we see through that process and when we walk through it and then when we see it at the end and we see how much change we can bring forward to our communities it's so empowering and you know like oftentimes like like you know like five six seven years ago i was never this like active. I I never pictured myself as someone who would go to the front lines and and, you know stand in the face of death for my Mm -hmm. people but I found my medium and that was writing. I love poetry I love writing short stories. I'm you know, in the process of writing a novel. So I honestly found my medium to express my voice and then I took it elsewhere. I took it to the activism community, to the law, to academia. And I furthered that and just finding your medium and knowing that your community, although it might not support you right now, you know, in general, no matter where you go, you'll find someone who like genuinely is empowered by you. And if you can change the mindset or the life of just one person in your lifetime, you have done your job in this society. And just work within your capacity. Don't work too hard. You know, don't starve yourself. Don't (laughs) don't burn out, you know, really do work within your capacity and, and love yourself while doing this because you'll never ever be able to do this long if you burn your body and your spirit out right now. Mm -hmm.
1: And those are wise, wise words. As somebody who's experienced the burnout and, you know, has had to take hiatuses, um, those are such valuable words and it comes from a place of experience. But I just, I wanted to thank you so much for being on the podcast today and uh, for sharing your, your oodles of knowledge. Um, so just want to say, miigwech.
5: Oh, well, nanaskamona, Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome back to Meenogandeg and The Good Voice Podcast, a show exploring reconciliation from an Indigenous perspective. We just spoke with Chance Papaticus. Be sure to keep an eye out for him during youth summits and conferences. Miigwech to all of our guests on this episode, the seventh in our series. And thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts on a subject that should be on every Canadian voice, reconciliation. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversations today and we'll tune into future episodes as we engage in more thought-provoking conversations about reconciliation. We'll close off our episode with a track from Kelly Fraser. This is Fight for the Rights off the album Sedna. Check out more of her music at kellyfrasermusic.com. Fight for the rights for
6: the rights of our people. Fight for the rights for the rights
7: For our future people, one new we had to wheel a new to me. One we to new to me day ma ronna yure mada wo nigwa la kuti menani wo akalu dini gwa inu gayu no na bu amisonika nini tamani left do sungura samata tu kisingila na hay fight for
6: the rights for the rights of our people fight for the rights for the rights of our people for our people for our future people fight for the rights for the rights of our people fight for the rights for the rights To people.
7: I know in Unavu we need a lot of things. How come we do this when we don't know what it could bring? Rich men want honey and buy our land. They're the ones with money who know they can. We don't even have enough money to compete have enough food to eat I'll fight for my land and I won't back down we can't take it back next time around they make money off of our needs our culture is the one that bleeds the animals won't recover from the mine our land will become the scene of a crime with nothing left to die. So here I am asking, asking you why.
6: Fight for the rights, for the rights of our people. Fight for the rights, for the rights of our people. For our people, for our future people.
0: Eno was produced on Treaty One Territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabek, Neheok, Oji Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Our executive producer is Alyssa Blackwolf-Kickson. Our associate producer is Sasha Mark, and I'm your host, Tim Fontaine. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of Boogie the Beat. Check out more of his brilliant work at soundcloud.com slash boogiethebeat. The interstitial music is courtesy of Bloom, You can hear more of their songs at bloom14.bandcamp.com. We would like to thank the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the University of Manitoba's Office of Indigenous Achievement, the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, the University of Manitoba Students' Union, and UMFM 101.5 for their support in the production of this series.